Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, we pray that we would be truthful people. We give you praise for being faithful to your promises. And we ask, God, that you would make us faithful people. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we spent a lot of time talking about truth and what it means to know the truth, right? Uh, And that truth is knowable because God who's sovereign can, can take his people who are created to be recipients of his truth, and he can impart truth to them. Uh, But we do want to balance that with the fact that we should have humble hearts that due to sin, we can always get the truth a little bit wrong, right? So, I mean, that's, so there's a humility, but then there's not a, there's not a, oh, you just can't know truth, you know, it's all your perspective, and that's the the lies of the world. Jesus uh, created us to know the truth, and we can know the truth. Um, so that's where we spent a lot of time last week. This time, we're going to start today um, talking about knowing the truth inwardly or about ourselves. So turn to Psalm 51.6. We're going to get to knowing truth about our neighbor. (laughs) So this is knowing truth about God. This is knowing truth about ourselves. Um, We'll get to the actual command, not bearing false witness about our neighbor, eventually. But Psalm 51, 6, I'll just read this. Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So obviously there, the psalmist is excited that God is teaching him truth about himself. So instead of believing a lie about himself, instead of believing lies, he's going to believe the truth about himself. And you can understand how the gospel fits into this, right? Because we don't, we don't normally see the truth. We have a tendency due to sin to like not even be aware of our own sin. Jesus has the statement, you know, take the log out of your own eye so that you can see the speck in your neighbor's eyes, right? So we, and so here's David recognizing the depth of his sin and he is saying, uh, you delight in truth in the inward being. So he can be talking about you delight when we are um, good in the inward being, but I think it's also you delight when we even see our ugliness correctly, and you, you delight when we deal with our truth in that way. So turn over to uh, Psalm 145, 18. Another passage on this kind of same uh, issue Psalm 145:18 uh, The Lord is near to all who call on him 
to all who call on him in truth. And, and of course, you could take that passage to mean all who call upon him as he is the truth, but I think it's better to think of it in terms of who call on him with sincerity of heart, with truthfulness in the heart, that they're not, they're not lying, they're not playing a game, they're not just outwardly using words to call upon God, but they're tr- calling upon him truthfully in the heart. And so it's obvious that, the, that from these passages, and I, we could do a ton of others, that God delights in people who are inwardly honest with him. Inwardly honest with him. Doesn't want you to pretend. He wants you to be authentic. That's absolutely right. Or in our society, um, our society does magnify the truth. It's a, it's, it is a, um, a value of even our fallen world around us to be authentic with yourself. But, but they then would want to say that you must affirm what you see there. Whereas Christians, we could be true about ourselves and we could say, oh, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, I deserve to be punished. So you're being honest with God with your sin, but you're not affirming it. The world just wants to say, well, this is who I am, and I have to be authentic to who I am, and, and God must affirm who I am, right? I mean, that's, that's unbiblical, um, but, but I do think he does want us to be truly real with who we are. So, brutally honest in that way. So let's turn to Luke 18. I'll let somebody else read this. Luke 18, you got the mic there. Uh, Give it to somebody else to read this. This is uh, one of those passages that is uh, truly um, at the core. So uh, Nathan Graybill, read 10 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, I hope you can see what we're talking about here. But what is it explicitly that is the problem with the the Pharisee? Self-pride, right? I mean, do you think he actually believes... I mean, what he's saying? Or do you think he's lying here? Pharisee. Yeah, Pharisee. Just like that, they do believe. Yes. I, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely true. So, so what is it that makes the difference between the tax, I mean, the Pharisee and the, uh, I guess it's the tax collector or the, 
the other guy. What, what is it that makes a difference? Why is the, the tax collector actually honest with himself and the Pharisee not? Right. So what? But a, a typical tax collector doesn't necessarily have to have that kind of remorse about who he is. Yeah. How, where did that come from? Right. So just as God is the truth Himself, it is the Spirit of truth. A lot of times we think of the Holy Spirit as imparting the truth to us. And he does, but he also imparts the truth about ourselves to us. The Spirit is the one who opens the eyes of the tax collector to see himself for who he is. Nathan. The older I get, the, it's, you think it's going to get easier. And it's just all these sins that I never even saw. Yeah. Start ex- being exposed by the Holy Spirit and you realize the rot and depth of corruption that you are but it's only because of the spirit it's only because in fact it's probably the it's not probably it is the uh the testimony of those who have been walking with god that they feel their sin more deeply the older they get because the spirit just keeps shining it upon our hearts uh and I can testify to that. I would be like, oh, yeah, I committed that sin. All right, let's move on. <laughs> you know? Now I'm like, oh, you wretched dog. <laughs> you know, um, And that is a part of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, to help expose to you, this is who I am. Um, <clears throat> the truth about yourself. Uh, Jesus' famous statement in John 4, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in in truth. Um, So, honestly and according to truth. Uh, Look over to 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. All right, Jim, go ahead. Likewise, also, that woman should adorn themselves in respect. Mm, Second uh, Thessalonians. I'm in Timothy. Timothy. I'll read it. <laughs> the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. <clears throat> Again, I think it's, you got both of these, right? To love the truth is to love the truth about God, but it also is to love the truth about yourself. Uh, and I would, Danny and I have this discussion. He's going to have a class on eschatology. And uh, we don't differ too often, and I don't think we have major differences on this, but but I, I think he, 
when he thinks about the judgment day, he doesn't want to think too much about all of the, the evil of his past being brought up. <laughs> and I think that's natural, right? None of us really want that. But as I have, um, as I contemplate that day, I just look at it a little differently. I, I honestly want all of my evil brought up. I want it all out on the table. <laughs> I don't want to have any pretense going into glory. I want you, everyone to know the good, the bad, the ugly, the stuff you probably couldn't take here, but at glory, under the blood of Christ, I just want it all straight and out. And uh, so we have a little bit, you know, obviously I don't want it out in the sense that it's going to condemn me and destroy me. I want it out in the blood of Christ and stuff. But, but this idea that Satan loves to lie. And as a Christian, I want the truth. I want the truth about Christ. I want the truth about me. I want him to be glorified and magnified. Um, and I don't know. I just, I remember Dr. Uh, Oliver telling me one time, he said, you know, there are some sins in this life that only Jesus can take. You know, uh, we don't share them with everybody, <laughs> the inner sins of the heart, the darknesses and stuff. But, but, um, but he, he knows them all, right? And, um, and on the judgment day, somehow I just think it's not going to, it's going to be different. Like, we're not going to be like, ooh, I can't believe Jim. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Peter, I can't believe you thought this or did this or whatever. It's just going to be all there, and we're going to enter into glory with no pretenses. It's just going to be, I just think there's a, such a ah, freedom in that, such a joy in that. So, Lori? Yeah, yeah. Yes, right, yeah. I just had a question about the different, um, I guess you'd say, definitions of the truth. Mm -hmm. Because this one is refuse to love the truth and so be saved, but it's not capitalized like Jesus is speaking of. That's why I'm saying that like, it's just speaking generally of truth, but I think it is probably talking about the truth in Christ, but I think it's also talking about the truth of ourselves, the truth. Yeah, so... Obviously, yeah, it's, it's gospel aspects. And right, you can't really know the truth about Christ until you know the truth about yourself. Calvin wonderfully said that, that um, in order to know God, you must know yourself. And in order to know yourself, you must know God. They're, like, they're two sides of the same coin. That truly, we, we don't know ourselves that. perfectly. No, we don't, and and that's part of what I'm looking forward to, even on the judgment day, or not being afraid of, because I do believe God has only gradually, little by little, showed me who I am, uh, and as I get to know Jesus better, I'm getting to know myself better, and they work hand in hand, and it's all imperfect. But on that day. We'll see Jesus as he is, and I think we'll know ourselves as we are as well. Uh, I have not. Come back, Barbara.
was like walking through a room that was dark and God just turned on one light at a time Mm -hmm. because if he'd have turned all the lights on, she wouldn't have been able to handle the greatness of her sin. And that picture was just incredible that he does. He shines a little light here and then here and, you know, just the kindness of it. Oh, no. And it's often been a comfort to me when when I'm particularly feeling the darkness in my heart presently to, to remind myself, oh, but when Jesus saved me, he had it all in mind. He didn't go, oh, I didn't know John was going to do this 20 years later. You know, he had the whole gamut in mind when he brought John to himself. And I think that's encouragement uh, to me that he's not shocked and somehow dismayed by uh, who we are um, in Adam. I mean, and there's another aspect of knowing who we are. Because you're, you're who you are in Adam, right, in your old flesh, but you're also who you are in Christ, right, in the new creation. So there's really, the truth is not just, oh, whoa, I'm a terrible person. The truth is, yeah, my old nature is truly that corrupt, but it's also true that I've been given a new heart. I mean, that's true as well, right? So, okay. So just this importance of truth both about who God is and about who we are is absolutely critical to our life. Um, this means, uh, let's see here, how do I want to go about this? Um, So, inwardly, God, others. The truth about others. Um, We said that the, the, the narrow version of bearing false witness, you know, we got the narrow focus of the commandment, and then we have the broad focus of the commandment. But the narrow focus is in a courtroom when you're called to testify about someone else's behavior, you should not lie about that. <laughs> I mean, that is what you should be absolutely truth, truthful about that. Um, and just like murder is the uh, kind of the, the pinnacle of anger, right, so... Bearing false witness in a courtroom against someone else is, is like the height of not telling the truth. It's, it's the worst that you could possibly do. Uh, but there's all kinds of lesser aspects as well. So this is where I think that we're talking about bearing true witness or false witness, but I think it relates to judging others, making judgments about other people. So Matthew 7, 1 to 5, let's look at this. Matthew 7. Joe, you want to read that? Good, yeah. 
Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So verse 1 simply says, judge not lest you be judged. And that is often thrown around in our world, right? Just don't judge anyone. You know, just let it go, everything. But if you understand the whole context, Jesus is not talking about never judging. What's his, what's his real goal in this? Look at yourself first, all right? He's, he's opposing hypocrisy. He, 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 and, and you're at, judged through God's eyes, and I'm going to say, God's judgment is a right judgment, right? It's a judgment according to truth. And so what he's saying is you should judge the way God judges. You should judge according to truth. So in order for a judge to judge correctly, all right, Dan's not here. Uh, I have my triangle, norm, situation, heart. In order to judge correctly, the judge has to understand the norm correctly, has to understand the law correctly, right? He also has to understand the situation correctly. What's actually happening in the situation, okay? And then he also has to understand the heart correctly of the person who's being judged. And you might, when you start thinking about all those, it's incredibly difficult. And you start thinking, uh, so... Um, you add to this the degree of light that a person has. So, so you, do, you not only just have objective situation, objective norm, objective heart, but you also have that the amount of truth that has been given to John Avery might be more light than was given to Lee Irwin. Does that make sense? The amount of light. And then you also think of the starting place. So um, you have, um, we know that tendencies towards sin are affected by family and genetics and all kinds of things, right? So, so um, the particular sins that I might struggle with are, are different than the ones Peter might struggle with. Uh, my dad never really struggled with anger. I never saw, like, anger come out of my dad in, in ways that were just unhealthy. And so um, he also didn't struggle with harboring resentment, you know, those kind of things. And so 
those were not struggles. Now, there are other struggles that I did struggle with, you know. And so, uh, so when I think about, like, you know, why is Peter dealing with anger? He's such a foul person. I think God takes into the account the degree of light and grace that he's been given. Like, he knows everything in the equation perfectly, so that when he makes a judgment against Peter, he does it perfectly. You understand how hard that is to do this? Um, this is why I think it's crazy when one time period judges another time period. Think about that. Oh, you know, I, this is the typical one, you know. I can't believe that godly people in our history own slaves. Okay, fine. You're, you, maybe we have a a sense of uh, truth that slavery is not good, that they didn't have. But do you just automatically condemn the whole society because, you know, they can't much foul pagans because they had, when all the world had slavery. <laughs> you know, so judging what, they might look at our, our areas of modesty and lack of uh, uh, faithfulness in marriage and go, whoa, you, those guys call themselves Christians, you know. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we have to be very careful in our judgments that way, right? Um, so the degree of light does matter. And I believe God, when he makes a judgment, takes into account all things. Even in our court systems today, you take into account a crime committed by a 14-year-old is differently than a crime committed by a 25-year-old. All those things are taken into consideration. God does that very well. So um, when I understand these sorts of things, it... it creates a certain sense of humility and a certain sense of dealing with your own sin um, uh, first and how, how hard that is to do that. Okay. Um, what does Jesus mean then in this story when he says the degree, the measurement that you use will be measured to you. That's what he says in the text, right? The degree, the measurement that you use in judging people will be measured to you. I'm thinking, wait a minute, the norm is the norm. doesn't matter what you do. It's just there. It's the standard. It's absolute. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. With the measurement that you judge other people, that will be the way that God will judge you. What does that mean? Take a guess. I don't, you know, it's, it's not an easy question. All right, that's a nice general vague statement. Uh, man reaps what he sows, sowing and reaping. But go ahead, what, what, flesh it out a little bit more. Here comes the microphone. No! <laughs> okay, so, so the, the, it's weird because shouldn't we all have the same standard, though? It's an absolute standard, right? So, uh, but you're right. How do we apply this? So, does it mean just be slack with other people? What does he mean when he's talking about this? Lee wants to jump in and then uh, Bill as well. It just brings to mind um, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Ooh, so in this judgment... Does it include forgiveness? Boy, that really 
throws a kink into the whole idea of judging someone. Go ahead, Bill. David didn't address the sin that was in his heart until Nathan came to him and told him a little story. Mm-hmm. And David made a judgment of what he would do to this person who stole the lamb and killed it. Mm-hmm. And then Nathan turned around and pointed to him and said, you are the man. And at that point, David was judging himself. Uh, and he correctly judged himself. He did. And then what does God tell David at that point? When he confesses to, to God, I did this, what does God do? Say, oh, great. Bam, you're done. No, <laughs> he did not. He, he let David ponder this. And then David in Psalm 51, which we read early, comes before God and he confesses his sin in this magnificent plea to God, would you forgive me? Uh-huh. And he was forgiven, but there was a cost that was meted out to him. And that was the child that was born by Bathsheba was died in the process. And there was a judgment there. Yeah, and, and I believe that um, we studied First and Second Samuel in our Sunday evening uh, study for a while. And we did, actually did it in Sunday school here, too. Uh, but there's a decided change that occurs in David post this, prior, you know, the before and after. Before, he's like, oh, uncircumcised Philistine, condemn. Then, afterwards, oh, my son is rebelling? Uh, Lord, have mercy on him. <laughs> yeah, it's like this, there's a tension in him that is, uh, wasn't there early on in his ministry, but later on, it's really there. And I think it's, it's trying to understand judgment mixed with mercy. That's really what's going on here. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Do they care at all about mercy? Mm-mm. Judging someone else, hopefully, like, Nathan was doing with uh, David that your intention is to bring them to repentance, uh-huh. which is always God's intention with us. So it's it's mercy, it's kindness, but it's for their good, not for their condemnation. Yes. All the while being aware of your own sin. That's really yes. I think it's. Very much like church discipline. You have to make a judgment, but you want to do that judgment with mercy, with, with an attitude of wanting there to be repentance and faith. And Condemnation kind of has the idea of just, I can't believe Brad did that. He's a scumbag. Get him out of here. That's the kind of judgment, right? Whereas, okay, maybe we do need to talk about the sin that, that Brad has you know, committed and we need to try to call him to repentance as Nathan did. And yet at the same time, there's a, there's a desire for mercy. There's not a harshness. There's not a condemnatory spirit. All those kind of things. 
I Jim? think it's important to, to keep in mind <clears throat> we are called to judge actions, but to keep in mind not to judge the person. Mm. Uh, while John said, going humbly to restore gently our brothers and sisters, which is what I pray the Lord does to me. So, Good. Okay. And Ken? I have to retract my statement about sowing and reaping. I think uh, that <laughs> deals more with the uh, temporal consequence of your actions. Uh-huh such as the case with David and the consequences of his sin after um, his business with Bathsheba. Yes. Yep. So turn to James 2, 12 and 13. We'll come back to Matthew 7, so keep your uh, finger there. James 2, 12 and 13. Uh, okay, looks like the mic's coming to Emmy. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Hmm. Do you think? Do you think possibly that the, the half brother of Jesus has been contemplating the previous uh, section that Jesus taught, and now he's saying, "Hmm, you better have a mixture of mercy when you judge somebody, because if you have no mercy." Guess what's going to happen to you? It proves you're not true, right? That, 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 that's your, you just took it the next step, which is absolutely true. But the, the way James says it is just like similar to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, right? So if you have no willingness to actually... Um, mix your judgment with mercy, then you're in danger of your own salvation. Yes, Shannon. As a Christian, like I know when I was younger, I definitely judged people without the sense of like, mm-hmm. I maybe thought I was doing it for their own good, but it was more of just a judgment with no like mercy, no thought for what's really going on in their heart but I do think like spirit of like Christ working in me it's like if if that's really in you that should be maturing and changing and that judgment should become less judgmental and maybe more with the idea of like how am I actually helping this person what's really going on in their life and seeing past maybe what you see on the outside the norm and, and whether it's wrong or right and looking into the heart and I think if you're really growing as a Christian like the older you get, the better you should do that. And if you're not, then either maybe you're not or something's not right there. Right. And this, I want to remind you that judgment here has the idea of condemnation, of finality, of passing the sentence against the person, not just recognizing the wrong to be wrong. There's a difference between those things. You can't actually extend mercy unless they've done something that deserves condemnation. This is where I think our culture gets it all wrong. They say, oh, you've got to be merciful. 
to the adulterer, to the homosexual, to whatever. Be merciful to them. And the way that you are merciful, they'll say, is that you must affirm the action. Well, as soon as you affirm the action to be right, you no longer need mercy. You only need mercy when they've done something wrong. You get that? You're understanding this? So, so I, I've had this conversation with lots of young people. I cannot accept the behavior in you that is wrong, that I can't say it's right, any more than I can look at my own sin and try to justify it. My sin is sin. It drives me to the blood of Christ. It shows me my need for mercy. And I just want you to know that if you are wanting mercy, you're going to get it from us. (laughs) But you're not going to get it by trying to twist what's right and wrong. That doesn't work. That's not mercy. So, but I do think in our judgments, we should be people who want to extend mercy to all who are seeking mercy. Ah, oh, you know, Jesus meets the woman at the well. She has had six or seven husbands. Does he look at her and say, oh, you're done. Stop. Get out of here. Does he say, oh, that's all correct. Don't worry about that. You know, no, he doesn't do either of those, does he? But he does extend mercy to her. Save the world. That's right. That's right. Um, so back to Matthew 7. Verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How would you define the log in Jesus' statement here? In his warning. Be as specific as you can. It's it's sin. Yeah, it's sin, but be more specific. Could be the same sin. It's bigger, right? So it's not just sin. It's even bigger. So what do you think the log is? <laughs> well, I mean, so, huh? Yes, you're in denial about it. Okay, so there could be, there could be sin in your own life. Okay, but do you guys remember the parable where, where Jesus talks about? Um, the master and this guy has, uh, one of his servants has this humongous debt. And then, and then the, uh, the master forgives the debt, right? And then the, the man then goes out and he has some people that owe him little debts, right? And how does he react to them? He has them thrown in prison. Then, then how does the master react to him then? Right, so, so can you think about the master, and he's watching, and he's looking at his servant that he has extended grace to, and that servant has not extended grace to others. What is the, the, the sin that makes him so angry? 
Lack of forgiveness, lack of mercy. So do you think in Jesus' statement that he could be saying, the log that is in your own eye is that you have no mercy whatsoever. And that sin is worse than whatever that man just did to you. Right. They were known for having no mercy. So just remember that, that we could say, oh, homosexuality is terrible. I don't commit that. I don't have that log in my eye. Oh, yeah, every once in a while I struggle with lust, whatever. I don't do that. And Jesus is saying, if you don't have mercy, your log in your eye is worse than whatever sin they're dealing with. Question. Ken. In Romans 2, I'd like to know if this also relates to it. It says, you therefore who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Uh, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Mm -hmm. uh, and so on. Is that also related to that? Sure, and I think that's part of the, rather than the mercy side of it, I think it's just the idea that you are condemning others for sins that you also commit. I think that's true. Um, but I do think that there's something about because Jesus has come, because he has actually went to the sick and the lost and the hurting, and he says, I have extended mercy, and you turn around and will not show mercy to another. Do you know how, how foul that is to God, in God's eyes? Shannon, hold on, here comes the mic. He's doing good. I always feel weird with the mic. I'm like, oh, my voice. Um, I was just thinking about, like, we talk, you know, with the pregnancy care center and abortion, all this stuff going on. And I sometimes think back to, like, when all this became, um, quote, unquote, needed. You know, people are fighting for it. Mm -hmm. um, you, do, you do kind of step back and go, well, where was the church? Like, why were these women feeling so desperate? for this and I would say historically look back I feel like the church did not show mercy to women in situations um, you know this is just one example for a huge lack of mercy for women who felt like if they got in the situation they were denied love care mercy help um, mm -hmm. and homo you know homosexual all of those different things like I'm not saying say it's right but like mm -hmm. there was that I mean when you read about it, it feels like there was no mercy from the quote-unquote Christian church mm -hmm. for our society to these Well, people. at least... At and least, where did that lead? I mean, there can be a... Um, the reality might have been much different than what is portrayed. So I agree. There's plenty of cases where there was not mercy. The same situation that occurred in Jesus' day occurs throughout the church and every day. Um, but the, I, I can guarantee you that there were plenty of... Uh, works of mercy that were extended in the I'm past. Sure there yeah, were. I just think like when you look at it as a whole, right? And that, but you, but just be careful because we may have, we may be clouded by by um, uh, selective memory. You know, <laughs> it's like the things that stick out to us are where somebody didn't show mercy, and that's what we remember. We don't remember the acts of mercy. Just like today, if you look in the media, 
are they reflecting upon um, the countless pregnancy care centers who have loved and cared for people, or do they just in the media reflect that one angry person that's trying to condemn somebody? They're going to give you a false impression of that. So just know that, uh, the, I don't know, it's, hard, it's just really hard to judge the truth. But I do acknowledge that if in the past there was an over-tendency to... Um, to judge or condemn and not so much to lift a finger to help, then that is something that the Bible condemns. It does condemn that. Yeah, yeah. It certainly does condemn that. I mean, Jesus is, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, you, you don't, you never even help them. You, you condemn that person, but do you do anything to help them out of that? And he's like, mad at them for this. So, in the story... What is the final end result in, in Matthew 7? What does he want you to do at the very end in verse 5? I think this is very helpful. Oh, so self-evaluate, but what are you actually trying to do with your brother? Help him, right, Shomers? You're trying to take the speck out. <laughs> You are trying to get rid of the sin, but you're not trying to condemn the person that is, has the speck, right? You're trying to actually get rid of it. And we as Christians should be trying to help one another overcome sin. You know, we're not, we're not just like, oh, forget about the sin. It doesn't matter. Just go on being who you are. Jesus loves you. No, he really does want us to try to get sin out of our lives. But we should do it with an attitude of humility one of people who have been given mercy, we should do it with, with precision and trying to deal with the sin and not crush the person in the process. There's all kinds of things that you're trying to do as you're trying to deal with sin. And you will, um, I can't say that I do this all the time, but there have been times where this has occurred where I can, I can um, kind of the ideal is that the person will then begin to focus on their sin, dealing with it honestly, and they will not think that I'm standing over them like a judge up in a, in a, in a chair, looking down on them from a, peer, a position of superiority to condemn them. They will feel like I am there with them. I've got my own sin. I'm working with God. We're striving to try to walk with God, and we're trying to help each other to love and good deeds. All right, back in the back to... to um, Yes. I mean, that's the kind of, it, it would seem to me, that yeah, no, that's, that's the kind of... That's the approach that you should approach. have. As a parent, because of your love for your child, you never just judge them. You're trying to help them become who they're supposed to be. That's an excellent uh, example. Other arms went up. Kate. I was kind of late, but when I walked in, the first thing I heard was that there was a focus on truth and judge in judgment we must remember that we don't have anybody else's truth. Mm. And we, not even about ourselves. And uh, it just came into my mind when I was teaching and there was a little a dispute among, between a couple of first graders or second graders. I would say, okay, you two sit down and decide what really happened. And when you both come to me with the same story, we'll, we'll talk about it. And that, that usually helped calm things down. And uh, I, I think... In, my, in myself, I, I have to remember not to jump to conclusions about a person just because of what I see or hear 
but remember that I, I just don't know their truth. So. It certainly makes you more willing to listen to their whole story before you m- jump to a quick judgment. Um, at the same time, again, you, we never, our commitment to truth will not keep us to just say, okay, that's okay for you, but it's you know, different for me. No, there is an objective standard. <laughs> there is truth. We're all trying to get to that you know, uh, and have our lives conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's where we're heading. Uh, but we shouldn't give the impression that we have arrived. And I, one of the priorities that, that I, in my own thinking about our um, church, is I do think the culture has increasingly abandoned its Christianity. So I think there's, if, if this is who we are, the, tr- the, the culture is moving further and further away. So what that means is, that when God chooses to bring someone to himself to save them, they are not going to be here. They're going to be here. Does that make sense? So if they come into our church and we look at them like, you're there? Why are you not here? Like, okay, get yourself to here and then you'll be okay to be in our church. We're in trouble. We have got to say, okay, this is who we are. We believe the truth. We're loving the truth. But when people are brought in, we accept where they are, but also want to begin helping them move along the path, both in understanding of the Reformed faith, but also in sanctification, little by little. You'll notice I'm a firm believer in the Sabbath, for instance. Our culture has rejected the Sabbath. So as as people come into our church, are they going to be Oh, the Sabbath, that makes sense to me, you know. Don't do any work on the Sabbath, worship God. No. So if you hear um, from the pulpit, I am not belittling people for their use of the Sabbath. But did we teach on the Sabbath as we go through the Ten Commandments and we help people to understand the Sabbath better? And I remember Peter coming to me and saying, you know, I never really thought about this that that much. And I'm trying to make better use of my Sabbath. That's the way we want to grow, right? Not just, oh, Peter, I can't believe you. You did such and such on the Sabbath. What are you doing? You know, so that when he comes in here, he just feels condemned by us. We have to be careful on how we approach people in that. Yes, we have the standard. Yes, we're trying to move to that. At the same time, let's lead with the teaching so that they can see the truth and then begin to embrace that. That's the only way we're going to keep catching the next generation. We have to meet them where they are. We so desperately want to be an authority. We're, we're, I think that's the biggest idol we have in our culture is authority or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. We want to be that. And so even as Christians, we have been given the truth, and we so quickly want to be that authority in someone else's life saying, well, this is the truth. You need to obey it. Rather than trusting that the Lord, being the author of the truth, will work that in others and being patient to allow that to happen instead of us being the agent for which that happens, right? We're so desperate to want that. And sometimes it's hard just to let the Lord work. But be patient and be merciful and speak truth, not be the truth to others. That's, that's well said. Yes, Christian? I think it's, uh, the, the truth is critical. And, you know, at least in my generation, there's a lot of feelings involved. And so, like, we have to be careful that we're not using our feelings or just 
trying to make decisions on people's feelings because truth is important, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, this generation is all about feelings and not really, you know, truth. Yes, and Clark, go ahead. In trying to think about the assault that men make of our beliefs, at what point in time do you engage men as Christ engaged the money changers in the temple? Um, first off, I'll explain my testimony. Uh, having, um, most of you know, having gotten my girlfriend pregnant in high school, I encouraged her to have an abortion. That's murder. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the truth. That's murder. I remember my friend Steve. He came to me, and instead of condemning me, he just said, he said, why don't you read this book? He gave me a book, and it was clearly that, you know, espousing that abortion was wrong. And I, he gave me the freedom to, to study, to learn, to come to the point of shame, to come to the, the point of needing repentance, recognizing the wrong that was going on in my heart. Uh, but he didn't just write me off and cast me away. And I think that's, that's better. Now, what, what I think is difficult, Clark, and more to your question, is that we do have a prophetic voice to the world. And a lot of times there is, um, this uh, goes into the realm of politics, right? Because you're just declaring something to be wrong and you want the society to accept the truth of what God says. You have to at some point declare that. Um, And I would say that it is... it is hard at, at that point to, um, to make a firm declarative statement that will not in some way appear to people as if you don't have mercy. But you still have to, you still have to make the statement. You ha- still have to say such and such is wrong. Um, and uh, you have to let the chips fall. So... When we did our social justice class and, and it was online, there were people that, that um, looked at our church because we had a strong stand as not being compassionate. Well, I think it's our duty then as a church to extend personally, individually, compassion. You still have to make the standard. You still have to stand true on what's right and wrong. Um, and then you... You're going to get misunderstood. You're going to be looked at as not compassionate at times. Jesus was looked at that way. Um, And then you just have to, in your individual interactions with people, be kind and merciful to them. Um, I I don't know how to be, I don't know, Clark. I mean, there's not a a quick and easy answer to that question because as soon as you make a declarative statement that such behavior is wrong, people are going going to look at you as being uncompassionate. And you can't shy away from making the statement because it's true. It is really true. You can't stop the lies. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the 
yeah. how can we be a better example? I think we are much more powerful just in the way we live our lives sometimes than in the things that we say to people that offend them. It's like they have to be able to look at your life and see, well, there's something different there, and maybe they'll come to us when they get to that point of desperation instead of somebody else that agrees with them. I don't know. It's just a thought. I could, I can, uh, my mind's thinking of examples, but I just uh, don't want to, um, to expose other people's privacy <laughs> in those. Because when you extend mercy and when you help people, um, it, yeah, you are being careful with them. The person has to have brought to themselves the truth. They have to see the truth about the sin. Um, the mercy that is shown, if it's perceived as acceptance of the sin mm-hmm. without their conviction of the sin, mm-hmm. then it's not, it is, it's not meaningful. It's, well, it's affirming their sin. That's right. So and God has to bring to them that it is sin and be convicted of that. I can't tell you how often I've told this to young people that are trying to stand on the truth and trying to learn how to love people. I just say, look, it's not mercy unless a wrong has been committed. So if you eliminate the wrong, there's no need for mercy. <laughs> so so you, you have to acknowledge the wrong, call to repentance, and you can extend mercy. So. All right, but so let, when someone's at that point, they're going to go to the person who has shown them love rather than condemnation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> you guys get this. This is a tension. It's a very difficult thing in Scripture. But, but God strictly tells us as his people, you better, in the judgments that you make, have them mixed with mercy. If you get that, if you just get that, you'll, you'll be in good stance. And, and God is, he emphatically cares about this. Another passage you could look to is Luke 7, deals with a similar thing um, when the, when the, the, um, um, the woman um, caught in adultery, you know, um, her tears uh, on Jesus' feet, wipes his feet, and all that kind of stuff. It's an excellent passage. But I want to do one more thing on the final <clears throat> closure of this. Um, in Deuteronomy 19, I wish our society would remember this one thing. It says, uh, Deuteronomy 19, 18 to 20, The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to, your, to his brother. How many people in our society will lie about somebody else, even under oath, and there is no repercussions to their lie? They can destroy somebody's life and then turn around and nothing happens to them. It's all the time. It is is a sign that our society is wicked. That you could lie to someone and have no repercussions on you. I mean, the Bible does this for a reason. It is just as evil 
as the, whatever evil the person committed, for you to lie about that. that is, and he wants that person to be punished. To tell a lie about somebody else is a grave evil in the eyes of God. No, I'm talking about like you're in a courtroom or you're, you're slandering someone or you're telling lies about somebody else. The, the, the Bible sees, I think they're specifically in, in this Deuteronomy 19 talking about the command. If you tell a lie under oath, the very penalty that that other person would have gotten, you should get. That's serious. You know, oh, that person committed murder. I saw them commit that murder. No, you just lied. Well, you should be put to death. You see how, I mean, that's the seriousness of this. So, so what that tells me is to tell, just as it's wrong to tell a lie about God, just as it's wrong to tell a lie about yourself, when you tell a lie about somebody else, that is a grave evil, um, terrible evil. And, it, and it, I think as a society, we have, we have kind of not even considered it important enough to even... I mean, think about the lies in our, in our, on the news, and just, it's just constant lies about people, and then no one, it's like, oh, okay, move on to the next thing, you know, uh, and so we have a culture that just lies, period. Are you going to say something? Well, I just think that racism seems to be a real popular topic these days, and Jesse Smollett comes to mind whenever you just said what you said. I think yeah. that he intended to victimize himself at the expense of Pretty much all people that don't look like him. Yep. And I just think that he deserves more punishment than a guy. But that's just one example. No, that is a that is a, a, a very specific example of this. Yes. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And then it says, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. If there were those consequences put down, it would stop the prevalence of the lies. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 yeah, I have that in my notes. Um, it's, it is, it's the, it is, we have made the bed that we're living in right now over many years of not caring about the truth. Um, uh, this goes back to parenting. As parents, you should desperately care that your kids tell you the truth and that they never lie to you about their siblings. Uh, that's a grave evil. Um, so, All right. Uh, we will deal with one little issue next week, and that is um, those difficult situations when somebody does lie, whether that's right or wrong, like um, Rahab, the midwives, Corey Ten Boom. Um, but we'll get into the, the 10th commandment next week too. So, Father, thank you so much for extending to us mercy. Lord, may we uphold your law. May we not uh, reduce the standard. Uh, and yet, Lord, may we mix our evaluations of people our judgments of people, may we mix that with mercy because you have given us mercy. And I know that it's difficult, it's challenging, but help us to do that very thing. In Jesus' name, amen.